Well, good morning, Parkview East. My name is Doug. I'm the campus pastor here, and it's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. I would invite you to take out your Bibles if you have them. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. So if you have your, your Bible, I would invite you to open to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 through 7. And uh, really that song we just sang there is a really a wonderful picture of what we celebrate at Christmas time, right? As we move into Advent season, it's the whole story of Christmas, the whole story of the nativity scene is when, when God lit up the shadow, right? When light broke forth into the darkness, when, when God really descended from the mountain low into the valley, right? We're, we're the eternal God of all creation who sits enthroned above all creation broke into human history and where you and I have the deepest and darkest needs, he met us there. That's what, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we celebrate. And so this morning, we're going to be turning our attention to really just a handful of verses here. Um, and we'll be in Luke chapter 2 this week and next week. We're going to be looking at, um, over the next two weeks, um, verses 1 through 20. But this morning, I really want to just direct our attention to verses 1 through 7. If you were to break down this section of Luke, the, the passage that we're in this morning really gives us the setting of Jesus' birth. Next week, we'll look at the meaning of his birth and the response to his birth. But this week, we're going to focus primarily on the setting. And so, again, if you have a, a copy of um, the Bible, I invite you to open it up. Craig has some in the back. If you need one, you can just raise your hand and he'll come along and, and put one in it. Um, but I'll read this for us and then I'll, I'll pray and we can, we can dive in. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child." And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for your word. And um, Lord, just that we learn um, the tremendous lengths that you went um, to make for us a people to save us from our sin, Lord. As we consider um, these verses this morning, Lord, our, our prayer is simple. It's the same every week, Father, but we pray that you would show us in these verses your Son, Lord, that your Spirit would be here, that he would show us your Son, Lord, that you might be glorified. Lord, we pray that you would take these words, um, which are beautiful, Father, um, and we pray that, that you would take these eternal words, which are true, and write them on our very hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, maybe you haven't seen it for a while. I checked. It's not on Netflix. So if you want to watch it, you're going to have to find a different way to do that. But uh, one of my favorite Disney movies growing up was the movie Aladdin. Okay? came out in 92. Some Aladdin fans. All right, I see you. It's a good movie. Um, but, but if you're not familiar with the storyline, it's a pretty simple one. It's one that's been told in many ways and forms throughout the years. It's this sort of rags-to-riches story of this young man who is a peasant boy in this kingdom, and he kind of crossed roads with 
Princess Jasmine in her disguise, not realizing who he is, and it's kind of love at first sight, right? It's a beautiful story, and then eventually, you know, this guy who's kind of, who's wanted by the kingdom, he's stealing, and he's doing some bad things, and it's not going his way. All of a sudden, fortunes begin to turn as he discovers this magical lamp that has this genie who can grant him anything that he wants, right? And so what he really wants is the heart of Princess Jasmine, okay? And in order for him to get the heart, the way by which he, he's able to approach and get back into favor with Princess Jasmine is he's disguised as a prince, and maybe there's a scene that as I was studying this passage, and I'm not one, some of you guys could just like rattle off quotes from movies from like every movie you've ever seen. And I've always like met you and I've just wondered at you, like, how do you do that? I cannot do that. But as I was studying this passage, there was a scene that just, just kept, I kept seeing over and over and over in my mind. And it was a scene with, with Aladdin, if you're, familiar, if you're familiar with it, when he comes to her on the balcony late at night one night, and he's disguised as a prince, and he's, he's got his magic carpet that he's riding on, right? And, and there's this scene where, where he reaches out, he's, he's on the carpet, she sees what's happening, and he leans forward, extends his hand, and he simply says, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And it, it, in the movie, it's, it reminds her of him saying it before when they met on the streets. So she's instantly like, who is this? magical man that's just appeared on my balcony. But as she looks at him, really, we know that, that Aladdin is disguised as somebody else. The, the prince is, is actually not a prince, right? And, and as he invites her onto his carpet for this magical carpet ride, we know that the question, do you trust me, is not just, do you trust me tonight on this carpet ride? The, the actual question is, underneath that, do you trust me with your heart. Right? That's really what he's asking her. And we can see the magic between their eyes. She steps on to the magic carpet and he shows her a whole new world. Right? You know the saying. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. As I was reading this passage, this passage, Luke 2, 1 through 7, is Jesus reaching out his hand to us this morning and asking us those exact same words. Do you trust me? And as we look at these verses, we learn this beautiful, glorious message that really we learn from the birth of Jesus is that in these seven verses, we learn an incredible lesson. God can be trusted. God can be trusted. If, if all we do is look at life as it happens around us, the pain, the complexities of our lives, the suffering, brokenness, violence, which surrounds us every day, we may be tempted to think that outside of ourselves, there is no one who can be fully trusted. But for the Christian, living equals learning to trust God with every inch, every ounce of your life, every moment of your life, putting your trust in God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Handing our life over to God does not look like inviting him simply into the margins of our already overcrowded lives. That's not what trust looks like. God is not interested in you accommodating him with polite, safe, and comfortable religion. 
The act of trusting God with all of life will be, in fact, rather uncomfortable. And really, trusting God means allowing Him to transcend the trivialities and the complexities of your life. With our passage this morning, God is opening wide His arms and inviting us, inviting you, to find your rest and to put your trust in Him. He is showing us simply this morning four simple words, God can be trusted. God can be trusted. What I want to show you with this text is, is really two reasons. There's, there's multiple reasons, obviously, that we can put our trust in God and that God proves he is trustworthy. But this morning, I just want to focus on two reasons why he shows us we can trust him and one great caution that he extends to us as we trust him. The first is simply this, folks. God is in control. The details that Luke includes in his account of Jesus' birth show us that God can be trusted because we see that he is in complete control. And two ways that we see his control in this situation. First is if you focus on the time period. The time period. Luke the historian, the author of the Gospel of Luke himself is a historian. He begins his narrative by placing Jesus firmly in human history. It's worth noting that Luke's mention of the census or the registration that happens here has become the single most discussed historical issue in Luke's gospel. And I won't get into the critics' concerns other than to say that most of their claims go well beyond historical evidence and build their arguments out of other historians' silence, which is typically not a good way to make an argument, okay? As we consider the time period, I want you to first notice when Jesus was not born. When Jesus was not born. Now some thousand years before Jesus broke into history, before he, the light broke into the darkness, Israel was in a much different position on the sort of world stage. Right? King David, we know, was on the throne. Israel was a great kingdom in the Mediterranean world. Solomon, who would follow his father to rule, we understand that representatives would come from all over the ancient world to hear and seek his wisdom. A truly glorious time period in Israel's history, about a thousand years before the nativity scene here. But that's not when Jesus came into the world. Since the reign of King Solomon, the kingdom had been divided. They had been sent into exile. And now, in Bethlehem, this day, there's really no kingdom at all, right? They're rather, they are a petty servant state of the great Roman Empire. We learn that Caesar Augustus is ruling the Roman world. In fact, verse 1 says that he's the ruler of all. Of the world. It gives you an idea of the extent of his reign and his power. The foreign, a foreign pagan people are ruling over God's holy chosen people. And it is at this time, in those days, Luke says, that Jesus, the long awaited Messiah, was born. What Luke is showing us, folks, is really good news. Caesar, the ruler, the most powerful man in the world, is but a pawn in the hands of God. As he sits on his throne and makes decision after decision, puts in place policy after policy. It isn't Caesar that's running the show. It's God that's running the show. 
And folks, again, this morning, this should be to you sweet, sweet news. It should be sweet news this morning. That right now, today, God rules over everything. The most powerful man, the most powerful woman in the world, God uses to do his bidding. Do not fear, folks. God reigns. He is in complete and total control. There is no policy that God cannot use. There is no man whose heart he cannot soften when he wants or harden when he wants. No plans that God cannot direct today. Even when we can't make sense of our political world, the climate around us, God is in complete control, right? And so for us to get caught up and worried and to spend so much time and energy and effort being consumed and discouraged potentially or encouraged to, to the sake of being overly encouraged by what's happening around us, we have to remember, we have to take rest and put our confidence in that even though when nothing else makes sense around us, God is still in control. He doesn't relinquish the rule of the reign of his, that he owns to men and women of this world. That's not, how God, that's not how God runs things, right? He uses them. Even the most Caesar Augustus, this is the grandnephew of the great Julius Caesar, okay? The most powerful man in the world. God is using to do his bidding. Thinking of the time period when Jesus came to earth teaches us a lot about how God is in control. But also, if you would consider, I would ask you to consider the place not just the time period, but also the place in which Jesus was born. As we consider the sovereignty of God and the birth of Jesus, we must consider the place of his birth. We're told in Micah 5.2, this is 700 years before Jesus was born. Micah 5.2, listen to what it says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel." whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Scripture tells us that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Long before the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, Scripture said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But here in the beginning of the story, we know that the angels appear, the angel appears to Mary and, and Joseph, and when he does so, they are in Nazareth. So the question is, well, how... Is God going to get Joseph and Mary and Jesus from Nazareth to Bethlehem? There are so many ways. I love this about God. There are so many ways in his complete and total control that he could have gotten them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. But the way he chose, the way God chooses was to direct the Roman emperor to initiate a census and the governor of Syria, Quirinius, to determine the best way to count these people is to send them back to their hometown. Now, it's worth noting that this is not normally the way that a census would be run. But it was the way that Quirinius decided to run the census, to account for the people, was to send them back to their hometown. If you were to go throughout history, you would see there's not a pattern of this in history. But God shows that even this inconvenient policy, I'm incredibly inconvenient if you're Mary and Joseph, was exactly a part of his plan. Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem 
so prophecy will be fulfilled. Folks, God is taking, it's no problem for God to take Joseph and Mary from where they were to where they needed to be. God has no problem this morning taking you and me from where we are to where we need to be. There are no challenges too great. There is no mountain too high. There's no wall so solid that God cannot break it down. If God sees you where you're at and he has a plan and a vision for where you need to be, there is nothing that can stop him. There's nothing that can stop him from getting you where you are to where you need to be. Now, I can imagine if you are Joseph and Mary, right? She is pregnant. And, this, and you're probably looking at this policy, the census. Oh, what great timing for a census, for us to be traveling back to Bethlehem. This is a long journey. Most likely, she's walking, and she's incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly, probably in tremendous amount of pain, right? The, the image you see of her on a donkey probably is more Hollywood than Bible, right? She's walking on her feet, and some politician thought this would be a good idea. Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous, right? If God is in total control, if even the rulers of this world are, are but players who do God's bidding, then even when we can't make sense of the world around us, we can still trust God. God can be trusted. The second reason that we can trust God is not simply because of his control, but also the, the fact that he has control, but also just considering his character and what these verses teach us about who he is. Verses 6 to 7 open up a window into the very heart of God. And it reveals to us that God can be trusted, not based simply on what God can do, but also on who God is. The very character of God should prove to us that there is no one better, no one safer for us to trust our lives with. All right, the birth of Jesus can be described essentially as a rescue mission. I don't know, parents, if you have the Jesus Storybook Bible, but it's an awesome Bible that brings Jesus into every story, shows how every story throughout the Bible reveals God's eternal redemptive plan through Jesus Christ, right? And as it talks about the plan of Jesus coming into the world, it does so describing it as a rescue mission, as a rescue mission. And that's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a rescue mission, it's not just any rescue mission, though. It is the greatest rescue of all time. To understand the true beauty of this mission, we must first understand our desperate need, our position, our extreme vulnerability and desperate need before God, surrounded in darkness. That this, in this darkest moment, is when the light breaks forth, when the light dawns. It is in that moment when the king comes to rescue his people. And when he arrives, the Messiah breaking into history, he comes not in a palace, but being laid in a feeding trough for animals. He doesn't come surrounded and full of glory, right? He comes in complete and total humility. He's not clothed in silk for a prince. Rather, he's clothed in cheap rags for a peasant. And with Jesus, what you see is exactly what 
you get. What you see in that nativity scene, there's no deception. It's exactly what you get because it's exactly who God is. Now, you and I, if we were directing, if we were writing the story, odds are we would not have written it this way, right? We would not have written it this way, but it is exactly how God writes it because it's exactly who God is. Whatever the distance, he will travel. Whatever the price, he will pay. Whatever the pain, he will endure for you. This is the wonder of the gospel message. This is who our God is. Jesus comes to us in a manger, in swaddling cloths. There's no room when he comes, even in the inn for Jesus. God can be trusted, folks, this morning because he is never, ever going to ask you to do something that he hasn't already done. As we grow in our understanding of who God is, the safety and the comfort that he offers, this world could not even touch. It tries to compete with it. It tries to tempt you to find it in other places. It cannot even begin to scratch the surface of what God offers. Our response, when we consider what we learn from the story simply about who God is, should be to fling our lives into the safety of his arms. Now, those are two reasons. God's in complete control, we learn from the story. We also learn his character. He reveals to us simply by coming in. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. When we consider how we can trust him, it's not just because of what he can do, but it's also because what the story reveals about his character, who he is. But there's also a caution here in the story. There's also a caution. The challenge comes when we consider this idea of trusting God. As God leans forward, reaches out his hand, extends it to us, and asks the question, do you trust me? There's a significant challenge that comes along with that. Because we are a people who find ourselves constantly asking questions, if you're like me, questions like, why me? Why now? Questions like, why this? And if you're telling me you're in control, and if you tell me that you love me, as I evaluate the circumstances around me, and you extend your hand and say, trust me, like, I'm wondering, this doesn't add up. Th this does not add up. Uh, you know, the, all of you are trusting the chairs right now that you sit in, right? I'm trusting this stage. As you think of, of what it looks like to trust when you sit down and put your weight and rest it in a chair. How many of you have ever, like, taught somebody how to drive before? Maybe a, a son or a daughter. How many of you have ever been in that position, right? So you know what it feels like to sit in that passenger seat? You know what I'm talking about, right? And you hand over the keys to that 14, 15, however old they are, you know, at the time, and they start the car and they begin to, to drive and, and you begin to be filled with terror <laughs> and fear. What, what am I doing right now? You're second-guessing yourself, right? Okay? Like, as you sit in that chair, you are trusting. You're putting your trust in that chair, though, that, that passenger seat, right? Like, I can be at home sitting on my couch, tr trusting that couch is going to support my weight, all right? Sipping some tea, reading a book by a warm, well-lit fire. 
right? And I'm trusting the chair to support my weight, right? But that's an easy trust. You understand what I'm saying? It's an easy trust. When I hand the, the keys over soon to my 13-year-old son and watch as he puts, this is a terrifying thought, like I'm just cowering in fear right now as I think about this, and watch as he puts it into reverse, Ugh. right? Like that's a total different kind of trust. I'm still sitting in the chair, but the seat is in a total different place, right? It's not nearly, it's not nearly as comfortable. Both are acts of trusting, but one is way more preferable to me, right? And, and the truth is, life is full of these circumstances, full of circumstances where trusting God is not comfortable, right? In chapter 1, if you look over with me, chapter 1, verse 28, the angel comes to Mary and, and gives her this promise of how God's going to use her in his redemptive plan. Listen to what it says. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But if you see where Mary is, nine months after hearing those words, Mary, you're favored. Mary, God of the universe, is with you and he's going to use you. And if you fast forward nine months, she's traveling on a road, about to give birth to a baby. There's no room in the inn. This isn't what favor looks like by my definition, right? I'm sure that, that Mary is probably thinking in her mind, favored? I'm favored your son, she's told, will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the one we have been waiting for. I'm going to do in him what I've promised throughout the ages. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, there will be no end. And here, this great son, this long-awaited Messiah is laying where the animals feed. Folks, this is life. The Christian life is not immune from the challenges, the pains, the burdens, the valleys. God says, I love you. He tells us in his word, I love you will never leave you. I will not forsake you. We hear God say that. Yet we can also hear it's cancer. We hear God say, I love you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Yet we also hear, I've found someone else. We hear God say, I love you, I, I will never leave you, I will not forsake you. And yet we also hear, you're just not qualified for this job. You don't have enough experience. We hear God say, I love you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And yet we hear, sorry, sir, sorry, ma'am, but there are insufficient funds in your account right now. When our circumstances 
seem to be inconsistent with God's promises. The image of Jesus laying in a manger among animals should remind us God can be trusted. Even though nothing else around you makes sense. Even when we are constantly asking, why me? Why now? Why this? Our minds should go back to that baby laying in the manger. God can be trusted. Folks, God's plan for you will not be undermined by your circumstances. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? There's no obstacle that will keep God from doing in you what he promised he would do. And our test of whether or not that is true, whether or not God can really be trusted, should not be to evaluate the circumstances around us. It should be to consider his promises to us. Because that's what, that's what the manger scene is all about. God can be trusted. And her wonderful, really masterpiece, Marilyn Robinson, she, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Gilead, but it's essentially this, set in this small, fictitious town in Iowa where there's this, this uh, Reverend John Ames who writes letters to his son because John Ames, is, he's, he's dying and his son is young and you probably won't see him when he's older. And so he's writing, he's writing to his son. It's really kind of this journal of his reflections on life. And as he considers just this unique position that he's in, he says this, I have decided the two choices open to me are, one, to torment myself as he considers his plight, his circumstances, or two, to trust the Lord. There is no earthly solution to the problems that confront me, but I can add to my problems as I believe I have done by dwelling on them. Folks, if you can identify with maybe you're in a place right now where the circumstances around you are causing you to call and to question the promises of God. With John Ames, we got two options. We've got two options. Okay? We can dwell on those problems and doing so add to them. Or even when it doesn't make sense, we can trust God. We can trust God. Trusting God with your life does not look like taking your plans. And this, I think, when you get into the nitty gritty of what does it look like to trust God, I think this is where some of us veer, okay? Trusting God does not look like taking our plans, our hopes, and our dreams and handing them over to God and saying, all right, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you promised you'll take me from where I am to where I need to be. Let's, let's, let's just see how you do this one. That's not what trusting God looks like, right? Sitting back and coming up with a plan for how my life is going to work, what it should look like, and then giving it to God and say, do your thing, God. I think practically speaking, that's how a lot of us trust God. But that's not what trust looks like. No, trusting God looks a lot more like us 
dropping to our knees and saying, your will be done. Not my will, God, but your will be done in my life. So just in conclusion, I want to leave you with some practical things. I think the big question that I would love for us to walk away asking and thinking about is simply this. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? As you gather in community, as you interact with your spouse or friend or neighbor or whoever God has put in your life, what I would ask that you would do is take an honest and careful evaluation of your life and look for places in your life as God surveys your life and as he says, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine over every area of your life. When he gets to, is there an area that when he gets to and says, that is mine, your, your career is mine, your children, those are mine, your finances, those are mine. As he says that, is there an area where you feel your grip getting a little firmer around it? Where, where it's maybe hard to let go of it and to trust God and to say, your will be done with my children. Your will be done with my finances. Your will be done with my career. Your will, God, be done with my time, with my relationships. Not the way I want them to go, but the way you want them to go. Father, your will be done. Are, are there areas in your life where it is hard for you to trust God? Just a quick way that you can test that is as you think of some of those different areas, are there some that cause in you fear as you think about them? Are there some that cause in you anxiety as you think about them or stress creeps in as you begin to think about those things? And I think on the flip side, are there areas in your life where not fear and anxiety, but maybe you feel confidence and you feel proud, right? It's a quick test. Are there areas in your life where you are not trusting God? And the challenge them is to, as he hands, extends out his hand and says, do you trust me? That we reach back and we say, yeah, I do. Your will be done. When we have nothing left of our own, when nothing will suffice but that which is directly and immediately of God, that's when God alone is your source of strength and your everything. That is when God is sufficient for you. As we consider Advent, it's ultimately about waiting, right? Advent is about waiting. The word itself means coming or arrival. It's, it's a time that we set aside and remember that God's people are a waiting people for years they waited for the birth of the Messiah. We wait for the second coming, for his return. And through his word, the wonderful relief. Waiting is not easy, folks. It's not easy. And he doesn't guarantee that it will be. But the wonderful relief he provides us is that God promises us. We see it even in just the way Jesus broke into his history. That God promises us. Even when nothing around us makes sense, we hear God's simple, subtle voice saying, I got this. Yeah. 
God can be trusted. Right? Waiting doesn't look like a Hallmark card, the beautiful background and a quaint village. No cute slogan sometimes accompanies our waiting. But God wants you to be confident. He is worth the wait. That, my friends, is what trusting looks like. Do you trust him? He can be trusted. Let's pray. Father God, we marvel at your plan, Lord, and we cling to your promises. Lord, as we are in this period and this time of waiting, Father, when the world is broken and fractured and sin seems to be winning the day, Lord, um, we are reminded that you are victorious. Lord, as we think about that nativity scene, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that when nothing else around us makes sense, Lord, you can be trusted. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks down, far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home and making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. <laughs>